quick word before we start today. We recorded this episode a little over a week ago, and even in that short amount of time, there have been some changes around FDA and CDC approval as it relates to the COVID vaccine booster shots, which is what we're talking about today with infectious disease pharmacist Dr. Jam. Who knew that was even a thing? She was recommended to me, and I'm glad I had this chance to talk to her. She's very knowledgeable, and I hope that you'll listen to what she has to say as you make a decision about whether or not the vaccine and the booster shot is right for you. Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It is a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues we're facing on a daily basis. And I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson, and I have a wonderful guest with me today. I have been wanting to do a follow up on what's been going on with COVID, the fact that it looks like we are going to need booster shots. And so I have with me Jacinda Abdul Mutakabir. Did I say that correctly? You did. Oh, thank God. Um, So I want to welcome her to the uh, podcast today and just have her introduce herself a bit, and then we will get right into this discussion. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Jacinda Abdul-Mutakabir, but I go by Dr. Jam. So um, I am currently an assistant professor at Loma Linda University um, School of Pharmacy in Loma Linda, California. And I currently serve as the lead pharmacist and clinician for our equitable clinics, which serve minoritized communities. So I'm really excited to be here and um, talk with you all about the vaccines as I am infectious diseases trained. So I'm an ID PharmD. And um, I do a lot with infectious diseases, so I'm excited to um, delve into a bit of that with you all today. Thank you so much for that. So before we uh, dive in, I just wanted to ask you quickly, uh, why did you decide that you wanted to get into a pharmacy and infectious disease? Was it a class you took or was that something you were always interested in doing? So um, in terms of getting into infectious diseases, I have always been interested in ID, um, I guess, since uh, pharmacy school anyway. It was a class that I performed well in, had um, a big interest area there. So when I went on to complete my pharmacy residency at the Howard University Hospital, um, I once again was thrust into, and, and D, Washington, D.C. is is kind of an epicenter for um, HIV. So I really loved um, ID in that capacity or looking at it from the HIV perspective. But then when it came time to managing different inpatient or different infectious diseases in the hospital, I was too um, intrigued by the treatments and the different um treatment regimens that were available for patients. And I wanted to know how to navigate resistance or when we see um, antibiotic therapy that no longer works. So with that being said, um, I went ahead and I did an infectious diseases uh, pharmacotherapy research fellowship, meaning that I worked with um, different um, different bugs or um, infectious diseases on the bench. So I did in vitro in vitro research where I tried to see um, basically how drugs worked on different um, bacteria and how the um, and how the bacteria then affected the distributions of the drugs. So I was really interested in that. I also um, have a master's in public health. So I really wanted to learn how to, uh, which I gained when I was completing my fellowship experience, but I really wanted to learn how to tie all of those points together for the greater good, I guess, of humankind not to sound like a Miss America pageant runner, but um, I I uh, really loved ID from that perspective. So um, so yeah, I think that's what spiked my interest was pharmacy school and it's just continued to grow since then. Thank you so much. I just was so intrigued because I had never heard of somebody who was an infectious disease pharmacist. 
Um, and so I was really interested in what that meant. And um, how long have you been a pharmacist? Let's start there. So I graduated pharmacy school in uh, 2017. There are actually, you know, a ton of infectious diseases pharmacists. I have, I'm a part of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists, and it's about 3,000 plus of us in this group. So it's a pretty um, robust pharmacy specialty. I think that most people don't know that pharmacists don't just practice solely in your community pharmacy. We, in every in every setting in which individuals have to receive medications, there is a pharmacist on board. So as an um, in infectious diseases pharmacist, I, I actually practice in the um, intensive care unit, so the ICU, but that means that I round with the um, team of uh, physicians or nurse practitioners, and uh, we together figure out the best uh, treatment therapies for patients. So with me, because I am infectious diseases trained, I focus more so on the um, infectious disease um, aspect of uh, treatment rather than um, different components, as that's where my specialty is. So um, that's the, the niche that I bring to the care team. So for you, did you ever, you know, because obviously, like most people, we think of our pharmacist as what you see in our community. Did you ever uh, work in that capacity or did you go immediately into what you're doing today? Yeah, so I've never worked um, in the community setting at all. Um, you know, shout out to all the community pharmacists. They um, they have such an important job. Pharmacists are arguably the most accessible healthcare professionals. So um, I think that's a it's the one. It's a wonderful place for pharmacists to be. However, I have never worked in that capacity. I did go um, straight to the clinical uh, realm. I did a um, residency, which which was based in a hospital setting, so on um, the Howard University Hospital. And then I did a research fellowship where I continued to practice in the hospital. However, I also did um, research um, on the bench top, so um, different um, experiments to um, to test antibiotics. Thank you so much. I, I really wanted to kind of dive into your experience. And I was really, really grateful when your name was given to me as someone to speak with, because I think part of what we are fighting um, as we try to get people to get vaccinated and to learn more is that they are now not trusting their healthcare professional when clearly you've got the background. That's why I wanted to make sure we went over that to really understand what we're talking about here. Um, and so I really appreciate you for um, indulging me and explaining some of it to me. I just didn't realize just how broad and uh, far reaching you could go uh, as a pharmacist. So I appreciate that. But what's the sense you're getting out there when you hear people talking about COVID-19 and about getting vaccinated? What are you hearing? So, um, of course, I hear um, a lot of different things initially uh, when it came time to the came time to um, be vaccinated. I heard a lot in terms of Oh well, you know, will the will the vaccines alter my DNA? Is there a microchip in the vaccine? So I I originally began um, the COVID nineteen uh, or my initiatives around trying to get individuals vaccinated, giving a frequently asked questions COVID nineteen presentation, where I went through and I talked about different um, different things, including just how the vaccines work. I talked about the clinical studies of the vaccines. But um, because I am a Black woman, a lot of my information was tailored um, to minoritized communities, so that being Black, Latino, Latinx, Native American, um, those that have been underrepresented in terms of vaccinations. So when I would talk about 
the clinical studies. I will talk about the representation of minoritized groups and how that compares to United States demographics. When I would talk about the vaccines, I would really focus a lot on just the um, the makeup of the vaccine. So I would talk a lot about what mRNA vaccines are, what it is that they do. Um, the same with the um, Johnson & Johnson vaccine or vectored vaccines. What is it that they are? What is it that they do? And I really try to make that something that we can consume easily and, and put it into layman's terms. So um, I would have a lot of... Um, I would have a lot of conflict into, or a lot of conversation around, you know, the vaccines weren't studied long enough. So I was able to provide insight into that. I would have context about, you know, of course, as I said, will the, will the vaccine, will I be cloned if I'm vaccinated? And then I heard um, comments as to fertility with that effect of fertility. And, you know, I'm here to tell you that we have no evidence thus far that the vaccines affect fertility. We have women that have gone on, you know, to get pregnant, we have we have um, seen actual vaccine studies conducted in rats with the Moderna vaccine, and rats share similar biochemistry as humans, so that's why we use them when we want to see how humans would um, perform if vaccinated and pregnant. And to that, um, the rats did not have any poor outcomes. So I've heard you know conversations surrounding that, and um, that's really just been the biggest I think pushback in terms of um, the vaccines and um, conversation that I've had surrounding, I guess, not wanting to be vaccinated or not even not wanting, just being slow to say yes to being vaccinated. And so let's unpack it a little bit. So one of the mm-hmm. things you talked about was that you hear people feel like it wasn't studied long enough. And so what normally is your answer to that when people say, hey, this thing just happened too quickly? Exactly. So I think that, you know, the biggest thing, and it's, I try to get people to really think about how much of a deal or how much of um, an issue money is, right? So this is what happens, seeing this quick this quick um, formulation of the vaccine, or not even quick, just this formulation of the vaccine. This is what happens when you take money out of the money out of the equation. At the end of the day, we are in a global pandemic, meaning that everyone globally has been affected by this pandemic. So everyone has a vested interest in actually developing a vaccine to overcome this virus. So therefore, we pull all of those finances into making sure that it happens. We pull all of those finances into into pulling the best academic talent that we have to make these vaccines a reality. So this is what happens when you remove that capitalism aspect of vaccine creation. But I think also what I what I talk about is just um, thinking about the fact that coronaviruses, while, while SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 is new, coronaviruses themselves are not. So there was MERS, there was SARS, which we heard about in the early 2000s. So there have been talks of mRNA vaccines Scientists have been in the lab creating mRNA types of vaccines, and there, and, and also scientists share when they when they see something come up that could potentially be an issue. There's a cross sharing of this information, meaning that when evidence of COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two became available, they the scientists in Wuhan shared that with American scientists, with German scientists, so that they could go ahead and make these vaccines. So it's not fast. This is just what happens when we remove certain roadblocks that exist for other things. And then I also talk about just the enrollees, how it is that we how it is that um, these these studies were represented. At the end of the day, um, we we have more more vaccinees or more includees in these studies than we have had for any other 
vaccination studies. And the studies that even come close to having the amount of enrollees, so we have about 40,000 individuals in each three of these um, studies of the vaccines that have been approved for EUA or an emergency use authorization. And now Pfizer is um, FDA, fully FDA approved. But for each one of these studies, we have about 40,000 individuals represented here. I went back and I looked at the HPV study, so Gardasil, and for the human papillomavirus, and they have about 30,000 individuals in that study. And it took them 10 years to actually enroll those participants. But here with COVID-19, because once again, we're in a global pandemic, it took us not even a portion of that time to enroll individuals that were interested in being vaccinated so that they could be protected. So I always make sure to just go through the facts when I get that, um, that, that pushback or the it was too fast situation. Thank you for explaining that. And then the other thing is, can you explain the major difference between the way the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are made and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? When we think about the vaccine, so Pfizer and Moderna are mRNA vaccines. So mRNA exists readily in our bodies when you are injected uh, with a, well, excuse me, mRNA exists readily in our bodies. So mRNA um, exists and it tells our bodies to make specific proteins that it is that we need to survive, right? So in terms of the mRNA vaccinations, when you are injected with that vaccine, it then tells your body, hey, you need to go ahead and you need to make this spike protein. The spike protein is significant to the coronavirus. So once your body sees this spike protein, it says, hey, this isn't supposed to be here. So then it goes ahead and it makes antibodies or protection against these vac against the um the spike protein. So should you ever see the spike protein in, in real life, you'd be protected. So with the vectored vaccines, it's a bit different. So it uses a, a slight cold or a common cold that really wouldn't cause any type of infection in humans. But what it is good for is actually packing that genetic information that's required to go ahead and express that spike protein. Once you express that spike protein, your body then goes ahead and it makes protection against it. So should you ever see this again in real life, you'd be protected against um, COVID-19. And the Johnson & Johnson is the one that's vector, right? Yes. So the okay. Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a vector vaccine, meaning that it uses a common code or a vector to go ahead and deliver that information that's required to express that spike protein. The mRNA vaccines, which we hear all the time, are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And why are we seeing, and I think I know the answer to this, but why are we seeing now, and do you think you know what we're hearing is true, that there seems to be a need for a booster shot? So I just want to go ahead and talk about variant strains and why they exist and what that um, and what that means in terms of us needing to get booster shots. So when we think about um, different different variants that exist, viruses need to change themselves or create differences in how they look so that they can go ahead and um, continue to wreak havoc ultimately. So our bodies are also smart, right? So once you get vaccinated, your body expresses the spike protein, your body has different modes of protection, but your body has different types of protection against that spike protein. So while one type of antibody may no longer work because that virus has changed itself a bit, that doesn't mean that you've lost all the protection against um, that specific spike protein. So that doesn't mean that. It means that the protection may have decreased a little bit, but you haven't lost it all. So that's why these new shots are called booster shots, meaning that you have to remind your body that it's indeedingly been protected. 
So you have to remind your body because then it's, it's experienced these variants or these slight differences to COVID-19 that it has indeedingly seen that vaccine and that it has learned to protect you against it. Nevertheless, these booster vaccines, because mRNA vaccines are easy to make, it's easy to incorporate um, these different these different variant strains that exist into those booster vaccines to go ahead and express um, the different spike proteins that exist from the different viruses. Um, so that's why we have to get the booster shots so that we can account for the slight differences in the original coronavirus vaccine. And then our bodies can go ahead and make the different types of antibodies or protection against it. So should we see COVID-19 or like these different variants in real life, we be protected. And do you think that at this point, all of us who've been vaccinated should consider a booster or is it best if you're kind of immune compromised? How do you determine, okay, yeah, I should get a booster. Should anybody who got it six, eight months ago, whatever the recommended time frame is, go ahead and get a booster shot? So right now, uh, we are still receiving information from the CDC. Um, it is it is definitely suggested that if you have an if you are immunocompromised or you have an immunocompromising disease state, that you go ahead and get um, a third dose of that vaccine to um, ensure that you are adequately protected. Um, there's there's conflicting information, no, nothing um, explicitly validated yet that um, individuals that are not immunocompromised have to receive a booster shot. I think that's something that we will have likely a definitive answer by the end of the month. It has been floated that if you have received two doses, then it's re then um, a booster dose is recommended for, and we don't know exactly if the booster dose will be the same, the same dosing as what it is we received initially with the first two doses. Is it going to be a little bit less? So that's something that we'll continue to receive information on. But I think right now, as of what, September 16th, I believe the date is, I think that in the event that you are immunocompromised, then you should be the person that is prioritizing going to get that, that next dose of the vaccine. We still have individuals that have yet to receive two doses, so we also want to keep them in mind when we are thinking about um, going ahead and getting um, that, that third dose of the vaccine. But as soon as more CDC information comes up for those individuals that are not immunocompromised, I think that it's important that we continue to keep our eyes peeled to know when it's when we should go ahead and get our third dose of the vaccine. And what about people who got, you know, uh, like we haven't heard as much about it. I think something came out maybe finally about two or three weeks ago. Like for me, I got the Johnson and Johnson. So, you know, like even when you were talking just now, most people talk about it in terms of Pfizer and Moderna. So what about those of us who got Johnson and Johnson? Are we in the same boat in terms of waiting to see if we should get that that second dose? I guess it would be for us. For sure. So absolutely. Um, I think that, and I'm really happy that you brought this up in terms of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So, um, right now we are still waiting for information. So I don't want to, um, go on the record saying you should get X, Y, and Z, but, um, I would consider to, um, get the two dose series of the MRNA vaccines in the event that another dose is recommended. Nevertheless, the CDC will release information on what those individuals that have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, what they should do in terms of when um, booster booster shots are um, are made, something that, every, that everyone should go ahead and consume. So 
like I said, I would consider, and that's something that I would have in the back of my mind if I received Johnson and Johnson that like the that you will likely have to go ahead and receive that two dose series for maximum protection. However, let's wait for adequate direction from um, the CDC in terms of how we navigate with that. And I guess that's really, you know, what may be confusing for people. So I saw, you know, a study that they, or, or something that they mentioned on the news, you know, is it best, I, I guess, how do we need to make sure that, hey, this is from the CDC, because maybe this was Johnson & Johnson saying that, hey, that second dose, you can get it at six months, and it gives you like eight times the protection or whatever. You know, is that part of the issue? Like, you know, if Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson are saying, oh, definitely get a, a second dose or a third dose, as opposed to it coming from the CDC, are we seeing where maybe that also causes confusion for people? Absolutely. And I would like to go on record saying that um, the CDC should really be our primary source of where we are receiving that that information. They have a phenomenal team of clinicians that compiles this information, a multidisciplinary team, and then they have physicians, pharmacists, nurses, that really um, um, microbiologists that come together, biologists that talk about what it is um, individuals should do in terms of um, navigating second doses, third doses, booster doses. So I think that we should really make sure to go ahead and um, and go to the CDC website, www.cdc.gov. And um, right there, they have COVID-19 right on their header. You can click and find all the information that you need to know in regard to COVID-19. Let's stay away from the New York Post, the New York Times, um, any other news outlet and really focus in on what the governmental agency has in terms, has, has for us in terms of how to navigate. And so like, I know people who are already getting you know, and I guess maybe it's Pfizer and Moderna. So I don't know if maybe there's been a little bit more direction about that with the CDC. But for example, you know, let's say in the next two or three weeks, you know, Johnson and Johnson saying, hey, you can get a second booster. Like, is there they can just decide that they're going to offer those even if it has not been recommended by the CDC to do? So, no. No, Johnson and Johnson can say, you know, what it is that they want to say, and they actually do recommend that potentially, you know, you can get a second dose of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But the CDC has to verify that this is so everything that happens is verified through the CDC, meaning it's verified through actual clinical studies, clinical results that's validated by um, a, a comprehensive and robust CDC team that vets the um, actual literature that that's made av- available and the actual um, study results that's made available by the by the individuals of these drug companies that conduct these studies against these with these vaccines. So Johnson and Johnson by themselves cannot say anything. It has to be validated by, um, excuse me, actually the FDA has to validate whether um, the food and the Food and Drug Administration, so the U.S. FDA, has to validate whether their findings are correct, and they have to they have to decide how it is that we navigate in terms of booster vaccines, in terms of third doses, even when we consider like the emergency use approval or the emergency use authorization. The FDA gave that meaning that they had to have a very 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 comprehensive, extensive review of the information and the study results made available by the drug companies. So the drug companies th- themselves didn't say, all right, our vaccine's ready to go. No, this was um, this was a very a very big vetting process. One that we're continuing to see with the, with the bears or the, um, 
vaccine adverse event reporting system where we continue to collect any type of adverse events that occur because we have to continue to make sure that these vaccines are safe and efficacious. And then when they make this decision about the third doses and the booster doses, they have to make sure that it's safe for one and two, that it indeedingly works so that it protects you if you do get this dose. If it's not going to add any any additional protection, then they likely will not recommend, you know, that you that you navigate in this way. So um, we have to just wait for the the FDA and then the CDC to go ahead and give us um, their their best judgment in this. And I know for some people, they were uh, concerned about the fact that there was emergency use that was uh, authorized by the FDA versus full approval, which is now what Pfizer has. What is the major difference between that? And should that be something that people uh, concern themselves with or worry about? So um, I think that, you know, it's important that while it has an emergency use authorization, it is very hard. It's, It's honestly probably a lot harder than what it is to receive full FDA approval in the grand scheme to undergo the EUA, they have to ensure that this is both safe, that it is efficacious, and there is very low low margins for error for an EUA, meaning that you have to show that nearly no one um, suffers any type of adverse event. You have to be able to reliably show that to receive the EUA. So the circumstances are quite strenuous for this, and this is something that I always you know, am sure to relate to individuals. So, um, and now we do have an FDA approved, fully FDA approved vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine. So it's a matter of having continued data generation. We know that Pfizer was our first vaccine available. I foresee that Moderna will be right behind them in terms of receiving full FDA approval. So it's a matter of, you know, being able to continue to generate just that full report. Now we have millions of individuals that have received all of these vaccines. But um, please know that the EUA process is not anything that's taken lightly. It is a very strenuous and a very, a very hard, a very hard approval to receive. And what about mixing doses or mixing vaccines? I should say, you know, they. I've heard some talk about that. Um, or, well, maybe if you can't find Moderna, you can get Pfizer. If you got Johnson and Johnson and they don't have that, you can get Moderna. Like, what has been? Has there been any discussion of that? And and what is the CDC saying about that? So we're continuing to um, to to evaluate whether you know you can receive one mRNA vaccine and receive the other. So I want to just say that there is right now we do recommend that you receive the same dose of each series. Nevertheless, say you go somewhere and you mistakenly receive Moderna and you receive Pfizer first, there is no recommendation to restart the series, meaning that you should you should just have that Moderna vaccine, and then you'll be able to, after you receive that Pfizer, um, and then you should be just fine. So if you if you receive the mRNA vaccines in a mixed match fashion, it is not recommended that you go ahead and read and restart the series with, with, with whichever vaccine you receive first. Nevertheless, you should go ahead and try to receive consecutive um, vaccines, meaning you should consecutive of the same vaccine. So you should try to try to receive two doses of Pfizer or two doses of Moderna. But in the event that you go out of the the series and you go Pfizer, then Moderna is not recommended that you are redosed. In terms of Johnson and Johnson, because that is a vector vaccine, it is currently recommended that you receive that sole dose of that Johnson and Johnson. So when in terms of the booster, 
Um, there's, there's conversation of which way you should go, um, whether you just go to get mRNA or whether you receive that second dose of the Johnson and Johnson. Um, however, we are just awaiting more information, um, on the best way to navigate that for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. How does it make you feel when you're giving out all this information, it's scientifically based and you still have people who swear up and down that either there's some sort of conspiracy or that, you know, the best immune system is our natural immune system and we don't need to get the shots. What, what do you say to, to people who, who make those types of statements and how does it make you feel when you hear that? I think for myself, I'm, a, I'm very, I try to guide myself on being empathetic um, in terms of, of, of the vaccines, I understand, especially because I do work primarily with minoritized groups, that um, healthcare hesitancy and just being, um, having just a, a lack in confidence of the vaccination process and the vaccines is something that is acquired due to different things that have gone on within the United States history. And that, and that mistrust is heavily ingrained in the consciousness of these communities. So I try to approach it from a, from a, a place of empathy. I always tell individuals, I'm just here to make you a stakeholder of the information by all means. It's your choice and how you decide to navigate this vaccination process. But I am very transparent. I, 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 I govern myself on being a, a very transparent person in general. So um, I always talk about how... Um, the vaccines, uh, how the vaccines work. I talk about the statistics surrounding the vaccines. I, I try to make sure that I'm up to date and I indeedingly have information, um, the, the most current information on the vaccines. But I also talk about the patients that I do see in the ICU as that's where I practice. I see those patients that are not vaccinated, that are heavily populated in the ICU right now in California. I believe that our ICUs are um, 95 to um, 99% feel with those individuals that are unvaccinated. So I'm just very transparent about what that looks like. And while our bodies do um, have a natural immune system, we have we have shown so many times, time, time, time and time again, that that's not adequate protection, right, against COVID-19. COVID-19 has no rhyme or reason, and um, it, it doesn't care that you took vitamins. So I'm, I'm always just very transparent about that. Do you think that we would be here where we would need boosters if we had been able to get more people to get vaccinated in the beginning when they first came out? Like, because they talked a lot about herd immunity and that we didn't reach herd immunity. So if we had been able to get there faster, like now I guess they say 75% of Americans have had at least one shot. Would we be here where we have this Delta variant and, and all the other variants that have been coming out? Had people been quicker to get the shots when they first became available? I think that United States wise, uh, we can look at herd immunity from there. But I think that we also have to consider where do these variants come from? So a lot of them end up coming from different places. So I think that global equity not being a priority, meaning getting vaccines to different groups or even shutting down um, or establishing travel restrictions was very much our issue because we ended up you know, going to these different places. And then when you go somewhere, I always tell people, you don't come back empty handed. So essentially individuals end up coming back with those viruses that may have been, or those different expressions of COVID-19 that may have been in other areas. They bring them back to the United States. And then once again, COVID-19 is able to go ahead and, and 
and go from person to person to person. And now it's able to evict those that were vaccinated because now this strain is a bit different. It may not have them in the hospital, but it may not, you know, have them walking um, just fine with without COVID-19 symptoms as well. So I think it was really, it's really a matter of not being conscious of it's, it's a matter of individuals not being vaccinated, but then not being vaccinated and going to other places and to, and, and take in bringing those um, those strains of COVID-19 back with you. And then once again, us not being able to give when we are letting individuals travel to those other places, we probably should have been um, somehow supporting them in their own vaccination process. Right. Because we want to make sure we're sending people there that we're equipping them with, with what they need to be protected against COVID-19 and to essentially not make it to where we are bringing other viruses or other strains back with us. So I think um, while us having equity within the community is important, it's also important that we have equity um, globally. Yes, I I think that's a a lot of it too. Once the um, vaccines came out, people were ready to, I mean, travel and go here and go there. Um, And so, yeah, definitely bringing those back from other places, even after I got uh, vaccinated. And that brings me to what I want to talk about before we end. Um, I was very nervous about going anywhere without a mask on, even after I had been vaccinated. So if we could just talk a little bit about masks and how um, effective they are, should you continue to wear your mask, even if you've been fully vaccinated, even if you get a booster, if it's recommended for you to do so? Um, I feel that we should follow all necessary recommendations. Um, I myself, I don't believe I ever stopped wearing my mask. So um, I think that we have to take into account that not everyone around us is vaccinated. And um, the one thing that we know with these different variants, while you know I have received my complete series of the COVID-19 vaccines, I know that there may be some type of decreased effectiveness there. And um, these are respiratory viruses, meaning that we carry the viruses in our noses. So we can, while I may not be able to get COVID-19, I can still carry it or be a carrier of it in my nose and potentially give it to someone, give it to someone that has not developed the same protection that I have. So I want to make sure that I'm asked to make sure that I'm not passing COVID-19, although I don't, I may not even know that I have it or I, I may be um, someone that's a carrier of it. I want to make sure I'm not giving it to those individuals that uh, may not necessarily have that protection that I have. So I think that we should continue to wear the the mask as recommended, Um, especially if you are not vaccinated. I would recommend that you do wear the mask, that you adhere to social distancing and do what it need, do what you need to do to remain protected. And I'm glad you mentioned that on the nose, because I've seen people who wear the mask and it doesn't cover their nose. Right. So it needs to cover your mouth and nose. Correct. Absolutely. Mouth and nose. Yeah, because I've seen it. People have it on and like I'm in the grocery store and I want to say so bad. Like, why <laughs> are you having a mask on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially like, I'm, you know, they're checking me out or whatever. And I'm like, Lord, this mask is not covering your nose at all. So, <laughs> okay. So nose and mouth. Definitely. Nose and mouth. <laughs> Do we believe that we will ever... Um, is this going to be a new normal where, you know, wearing masks for a while will be the the, the way we do things? Um, do you think that we'll ever get back to what we knew life to be like before COVID-19? Um, I think that even when we think about masks, this is something that um, infectious diseases professionals have really been pushing 
since uh, we began, um, since we since we've seen viruses, right? So when we talk, even when talking about just the the, the uh, flu pandemic, we always tell individuals, if you do not feel well, wear a mask. So um, I do think that masks will become integrated within our new mo- normal. I think that you uh, we may we may be able to go ahead and overcome uh, the the what we what we see the pandemic to be right now. However, um, I do think that COVID nineteen vaccinations will be integrated just in the normal vaccines that we receive every year. Um, I think I don't see this as being someone some a, a one off like we we experience it. 2020 to 2021 or 2021 to 2022. And we say, okay, bye COVID-19. I don't think that's gonna be the case. I would prepare, and this is something I'm very transparent about. Um, I would prepare to continue to receive these vaccinations for a while to, to have it be, it may, we may decrease the amount of times that we have to receive it. So maybe it'll become like Tdap where we only have to get it every 10 years or so. But um, for the time being, I see this as something that we'll have to get at least every year. Hopefully, um, it will become something that we can receive in a one-dose series very seamlessly. Um, and mRNA technology is advanced, so maybe they'll be able to also include prominent influenza strains in there. So maybe you could get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time. I'm not sure if that will be the case, but I would prepare for this not to be a one-time thing. I know that's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i just I, fe- I see masks in my future for quite a while mm-hmm. um, if there is one thing you want people as we prepare to wrap up to take away from our conversation today about you know thinking about if, let's say it's somebody who you know i think that there's a demographic of you know it seems to be young african-american males who are really skeptical about it for people who are skeptical who are still mulling it over what would you want them to most take away from what we've talked about here today as they still you know work through making that decision right so i always want to tell people that while um while that that conversation or or that decision behind make, getting the COVID nineteen vaccine is one that you should make for yourself. You also want to think about how can I protect my fellow man. So not even or how can I protect my neighbor's family? Or um, I think that this is really just a matter of not just yourself. It's the people around you. It's the people that you interact with. It's your it's your granddad. It's your it's your grand it's your grandma. It's your it's your parents. And um, your children who are less than 12 years old and unable to be vaccinated. So it was really just a community effort. This is a group project here. We have to help each other stay protected and stay safe during this pandemic. So really think about more than just ourselves here. So I always want to leave people with that idea. And then I always want to say the science is there. The science is not lacking. And um, I'm a black woman from a black family and the science of these vaccines and knowing and knowing about the science of these vaccines was important to me, not only for myself, but for my family so that I could I could give them assurance as they went ahead to be vaccinated. The science is there is validated. Let's trust it. Let's work hard to protect ourselves, to protect those around us. And um, let's really lean into the facts. Lean into the facts. I love it because I, I do fear sometimes that the stuff we see online um, or even coming directly from the pharmaceutical company. Like I saw that report and I thought, oh, Johnson and Johnson, we're supposed to get it at six months. And now talking to you, I know that I need to 
you know, hold off on that a little bit and wait and see uh, what the uh, CDC recommends. So I really appreciate your time today. Um, I'm hoping that this conversation will help someone who's either thinking about getting vaccinated in general or if they're immune compromised or they're thinking about uh, that booster dose. Uh, so that's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about on In My Shoes, you know what to do. Hit me up at KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. Again, that is KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. Thank you again, Dr. Jam, for being my guest today. And until we have a chance to speak again, be blessed.